you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles 17. 1 Chronicles 17, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. This is one of the accounts of the Davidic covenant, covenant that God made with King David during his lifetime. First Chronicles 17, verse 11. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, then I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. One of the important things we see in this covenant is a progress in revealing coming new covenants. Comparing this to what we read last week in the Abrahamic covenant, we see greater clarity on what this new covenant is going to feature. We see here a promise concerning a coming descendant of David who would forever reign upon the throne. Uh, and this promise at, at times may have seemed um, impossible to the Jewish people considering uh, following the divided kingdom and then the carrying off into exile, there ceased to be a descendant of David on the throne. And it was that way for hundreds of years. But yet God, in his perfect timing, brought a descendant of David, established him on that throne forever. And of course, that is none other than Jesus Christ. And so we see the, the other bookend of uh, the Old Testament, the last divine covenant before the new covenant. This week, we're going to look more deeply at the different types of covenants. And I'm wanting to read some of these uh, Old Testament covenants week by week so that we're getting more familiar with them to, to where when we arrive at going through them in depth, we already have a little bit of familiarity with them. And we're already recognizing the parts and pieces of a covenant in the defini definition we learned last week to what we're seeing. So this week, we're going to move on past defining a covenant by looking at the different types of covenants. And then we're going to be looking at the six divine covenants of scripture themselves briefly. And then we're gonna start going into making distinctions within the definition of a covenant. Uh, distinctions that are essential for us to rightly understand the covenants that we look at in scripture. Before we enter into our material, uh, if you would join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we, we live in a day and age where we can look back upon all that you have done in human history. And though, Father, you have not uh, designed us to have a full record of everything that you have communicated and revealed to mankind, yet you have given us all that you have deemed necessary in your word for life and godliness. Father, we, we desire to rightly understand your word to know what you have done truly in the past. Father, that we would see what you're doing in the present in light of that and marvel 
at how much better, how much greater, how much more perfect this new covenant of grace is. Thank you, Father, that we, we can look back upon what Christ has done rather than anticipate and try to look through types and shadows. Thank you for the clarity that we have. Thank you, Father, that we live in a day in which we understand things clearly. Days gone by when prophets and angels longed to look in these things and could not see. Father, may we steward well the truths that we now have. Pray that you would guide us as we look deeper into the covenants that you have made with man in the past. Father, that you would guide us into understanding them rightly. Pray that you give us uh, open hearts to hear and understand and to consider uh, understanding them in ways perhaps different than we've ever heard or understood before. Pray that you would guide us into truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For sake of review, for those who may not have been here last week, and also, again, to, uh, to get in our minds this definition of a covenant, you'll see on the slide behind me the definition that I've provided. The covenant is a divinely imposed, sworn legal agreement between the parties of God and man containing conditional promises of blessing contingent upon obedience and threatening curses upon the violation of the conditions. And then at the conclusion of last week's class, we broke that definition down into uh, seven different pieces, and then the eighth one is added on just uh, to uh, emphasize the fact that all covenants are a gracious condescension of God. So covenants have an agreement, two parties, a legal contract, conditions, promised blessings, threatened curses, an oath, and as I said, all covenants are a gracious condescension of God in which he reveals himself to mankind, he establishes relationship with man, and he clearly communicates to man what is expected of him and required of him within the covenant. Now, there's a difference between all covenants being gracious and all covenants being part of the covenant of grace, two very different things. Gracious condescension uh, is more getting at a grace of God that's more in line with the common grace in uh, comparison to a saving grace. God lowers himself and through these covenants makes himself known, makes relationship with man, pointing through these covenants to the covenant of grace. Now as we enter into unit two, where we're going to be talking about the three different types of covenants, I want to open it up real quick to see if anybody has any questions about the definition, things that you've been thinking about from this past week, uh, things that you'd like to ask. Uh, I'm uh, going to let people ask questions if they would like to. No questions? Oh, Jeremy. I'll ask one. It's sure. totally related, but from my own peripheral study, sure. Robertson has a definition of covenant, covenant, and I want to read from here. He defines it as a bond in blood sovereignly administered, um, with blood being such a huge part of many of the covenants. Is that is that an essential piece, not in the definition which we have here, but certainly? Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, Jeremy was asking... Um, in light of O. Palmer Robertson's definition uh, of a covenant, which 
has the uh, activity of the shedding of blood very present uh, in it. Um, is that applicable in our definition? The answer is yes. Um, what are the characteristics uh, that you'll find in looking at the covenants of scripture is that uh, not all the parts and pieces are found in every account. Um, one of the ones that uh, is directly connected to the Davidic covenant, which uh, is instructive, uh, is that there is no evidence of a swearing or oath by God. And yet, outside of that account, there are several passages of scripture that clearly state that God made an oath um, to David. And so, using that as an example, even though uh, the account that we, we read uh, this morning about the Davidic covenant, it doesn't have a shedding of blood uh, present there in cutting and ratifying that covenant. Um, that shouldn't make us think that, oh, well, that's not a covenant because blood isn't present. It's possible that some sort of activity related to that happened. It's just not recorded in scripture. Scripture's aim in every place not to feature every single detail. Um, but only your question about um, uh, once we get through it, we're going to have a uh, a look at the role of the shedding of blood and being that point in which a covenant is ratified or established, which is really important when you're dealing with the Abrahamic covenant and especially the new covenant. Um, so I'll be bringing that in. It's not in the definition because not all the covenants seem to fit that. Um, my goal was to create a definition that uh, was comprehensive enough that dealt with what we actually do see associated with covenants in scripture. So we will be talking about that, and it is very important. Yeah, you're welcome. Any other questions? Same, the same thing, I guess, kind of goes to the condition aspect of it, though. I'm assuming we're implying that there's conditions, even though they might not expressly be stated, like with David. There wasn't anything that David had to do expressed in there, and he didn't say the consequences or mm -hmm. anything like that. Yeah, so one of the things that's important about something like the Davidic Covenant is there's more than one passage that provides it. One of the other parallel passages um, is more specific on the conditions. Yes, Mike. I guess that's like in the Covenant of Works with Adam. Yes. The, the curse was expressly told, but the blessing was implied. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Mike. That's a great example. Um, he was saying that uh, the covenant of works has a very clearly defined threat and curse, but the promised blessing isn't as clear, and yet you go outside of Genesis, and other scripture makes it very clear that there was a promise of some sort that, that Adam was uh, seeking to attain in his, uh, seeking to keep the, the conditions of the covenant of works, but yet it's not clearly implied and stated there in Genesis. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that's, that, that's really important, working with the account of the covenant being cut and ratified, but then going to other scriptures uh, and finding uh, additional information and clarity that helps us to more rightly understand uh, them. Uh, one of the, the, the problems with a lot of people who don't do that is they're looking for all the parts of a covenant in that account. And there are a lot of people who deny the presence of a covenant of works. Um, there are people in Reformed Baptist circles that are more um, in line with uh, a way of interpreting the covenants called New Covenant Theology, which we'll be looking at in a little bit of depth um, towards the end of our study. Um, but yet, using Scripture to help you understand Scripture, so important, it's essential. We're going to be trying to do that as we work our way through um, the covenants of Scripture. Any other comments before we continue on? Yes, Kelly. One of the 
Yes, yes, um, that idea of a man after God's own heart, walk before me, um, carries within it that means. We'll be talking about that more thoroughly, uh, but that's a, a really important point, connecting those covenants together with those same conditions that are equal and the same in every way. Thank you, Kelly. All right, let's move on to unit two. So theologians recognize that there are three different covenants in Scripture, three different divine covenants, and they are the covenant of works, national covenants, and then the covenant of grace. So let's first of all look at the covenant of works. The covenant of works can be defined as the covenant made with Adam and all his posterity, which bound them to perfect, perpetual, and exact obedience to the moral law of God and the single law of prohibition. The obedience promised eternal life, and disobedience promised death. <clears throat> now there's a lot more that could be said here. We're looking at this very briefly, kind of as an, as an introductory way. Uh, we will be coming back to each of these covenants and looking at them with much more depth and detail. Uh, in fact, this <clears throat> past week, I was working on material for the covenant of works. Um, and we will go much more deep. But just as a point of introduction, this is the first covenant that God made with man. Yes, Mike. Yes. Does that help? <laughs> I'll read it again because it's really important to understand what, what's happening here. So the covenant of works is the covenant made with Adam and all his posterity. Posterity meaning descendants. Um, and that means all of them, without exception. And it bound them to perfect, perpetual, and exact obedience. Um, the 1689 uses the word personal in connection with that. Obedience to the moral law of God. And then the second condition is the single law of prohibition, which is do not eat and partake of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The obedience... That was required of him, promised eternal life, and disobedience promised death. So, there's only one covenant of works, and this is it. The covenant of works is what God made with Adam. Adam representing all of mankind as a, uh, and these terms, we'll, we'll use them much more in the future, but a federal representative head he acted for the whole which is why when adam fell all of the consequences that fell upon him fell upon us uh, it's that doctrine of original sin it's as if in the garden of eden when adam took and ate we did with him we were guilty and we are born um, in iniquity bearing the original guilt of adam's sin that's why uh that's why we can say we're born sinners. We don't become sinners. We're born already tainted by sin because of Adam. Um, we'll talk more about why, why did God choose to do it through one person representing the whole rather than each person for themselves in the future. 
Um, but yet, that's what God chose to do. And that is actually a gracious plan that he had. But yet, we know the story um, that Adam, uh, in having the moral law of God written upon his heart, which the 1689 very clearly states that he was born, uh, not born, but created in the Garden of Eden, with the law written upon his heart, that same law would become what was given at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. <coughs> that law is equal. Uh, I like to call the law that Adam was uh, created with in the garden the, the law of conscience. It's written upon the mind and heart. And then after he was created, he was placed in the Garden of Eden. And then at that point, God came to him and made a covenant with him. Binding upon him, and the account in Genesis is very clear, stating that God um, gave to him that additional positive law. Positive meaning not according to nature. Uh, what was according to nature was the moral command that was written upon his heart. God added to it a command, a single positive law that prohibited him from uh, partaking of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, many commentators talk about how that tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil was a tutor to teach Adam obedience in light of his um, dominion over all things in the world. God gave him freedom to do whatever he wanted except for that one tree. There wasn't anything bad about that tree in and of itself. But God was teaching him that though he has dominion, he is not Lord of the universe. He was a, an individual placed under the lordship of God. And we talked a little bit about uh, last week in the definition of a covenant. Um, the example in the near Middle Eastern covenants uh, in the, the early days after creation, the suzerain-vassal relationship. Uh, and that in these covenants, God is that suzerain lord, ruler, the superior party, and man is the inferior party. And so when we say that, that man, in a sense, was a, a king exercising dominion and lordship over the earth, he was a vassal king, subservient to the superior king. And that this tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God's means of teaching Adam obedience. But of course, we know the story. Adam violated it. And in violating that single law of prohibition, he actually violated all ten of the Ten Commandments. We'll talk more about that in the future. Um, the covenant promised him life. Life that was greater than what he was experiencing. He was seeking through his obedience, through that temporary time of probation, to merit through obedience a level of life where he was no longer able to die. A level of life that was greater than what he experienced. But that covenant also threatened death. The day you eat of that tree, you will die. We don't know how much Adam understood that threatened curse. We don't know how much he understood that he was acting not just for himself, but for the sake of all humanity. <clears throat> but <clears throat> we know the account that Adam partook and that it was when Adam took that the consequences began to fall. Eve took first, remember? Uh, the eyes of them were not open until Adam took. That Adam's sin was far greater than Eve's, which flips uh, that story completely on its head. It's not the woman's fault. Adam and Adam alone 
sinned greatly before God. Yeah, Mike, your question is about when was Adam present in that narrative of the fall? Um, in my studies, I think a lot, of, a lot of scholars and commentators believe that Adam was present the entire time. Uh, and that Adam, uh, he, he did not protect his wife from the serpent. Uh, he did not um, choose to believe God. He believed the, the voice of another. Um, Eve twisted the words of God, um, and Adam did nothing to stop her. And it's interesting to note uh, that God made the covenant of works with Adam in the garden before Eve was created. There's a lot of debate, was Eve under that single law of prohibition that Adam was under? Um, I don't think we can definitively say. Uh, she was obviously under that moral law, um, but Eve's sin and partaking of it did not have the same consequences that Adam had. Um, so there's a lot more that could be said there. And, and when we get to uh, the covenant of works, otherwise known as the Adamic covenant, um, we'll spend some time digging deep into that and, and uh, talking about some of these things that are, are difficult and hard. And, and we can try to speculate a little bit. Um, some of them we don't know definitively the answer. Um, all that we know here is that Eve's sin was not on the same level as Adam. Adam's sin plunged not only himself and Eve, but every single human being that would ever live outside of Christ into um, all of the curses, all of the, uh, the things that would come upon them uh, that day. Spiritual death, physical death, though delayed, uh, was confirmed when Adam died. Even before Adam died, we see Cain killing Abel and the reality of sin and the possibility of sin. Um, being present. So can I? Yes, so With Adam and Eve, which is our first glimpse of God's justice. Mm -hmm. Yes, we see first uh, God's justice. We see him coming to them. Uh, we see him uh, coming to them in the cool of the day. Uh, I'd like to someday, Lord willing, preach through Genesis. Um, and things like the, the cool of the day. Meredith Klein talks about how in the, <clears throat> the Hebrew there, it's not a cool, you know, nice afternoon. That's not what the, the, the Hebrew is getting at. Uh, it, it almost more nearly means the wind of the day. And he believes that that word wind, depending upon how it's used in context, could be talking about the whirlwind of God's judgment and wrath. So this was not a, 
a nice appearance by God, <coughs> which, <coughs> excuse me, which I think we can see in Adam and Eve hiding, hiding from the presence of God. Um, but anyways, um, did, did, I, did I answer your question or did you ask something more specific? I might have gone in direction there. I want to make sure I answered no, it. No, but you just said they were hiding from God's presence. Yes. Yes, things haven't changed. Right. We still think we can hide from God. So what happened to the covenant of works after Adam and Eve fell? It's a great question. Some say the covenant of works um, was concluded. Our 1689 Confession of Faith teaches that the same law that Adam and Eve were born with that function as this covenant of works continue to be a law of personal, perpetual, exact obedience until it was given on Mount Sinai in a republished uh, form uh, in the Ten Commandments. And what the 1689 is teaching there uh, is the fact that the covenant of works, which specifically is speaking of the moral commands that God wrote upon the heart, Romans 1 gets at that. All men are without excuse because they know the law has been written upon their heart in the form of their conscience. And what the 1689 is, is trying to point out is that without that law, there is no sin. Paul in Romans gets at that. And what that means is that that covenant of works in the form of the law, that single law of prohibition falling away because its purpose in the garden um, was... Uh, completed, but that moral law continued to be binding on all men at all times. And that means that that moral law is binding on all men, not just the Jews. What condemns all men today? It is this law that's written upon their heart, a law that was republished on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments, a law that every man knows, and it was given in uh, the very first scripture on Mount Sinai to make it clear that what was written on the heart that could be overwritten and seared through sin was now inscripturated in written form and could not be altered, and that this covenant of works remained binding upon all men at all times. And we'll talk more about the nature of that in connection with the rest of the covenants in the Old Testament. But the covenant of works is still upon men today. You are either under the new covenant of grace in light of Christ, or you are under this covenant of works, and it will judge and condemn on the last day. So the covenant of works, that's the first type of covenant. There's a lot more that can be said about this, and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to have a lot more to say about it in the future. Um, but for sake of introduction, that's the covenant of works. There's only one covenant of works given in the garden and continue to remain binding on all men at all times, both Jews and Gentiles. The second type of covenant, national covenants. Yes, Mike. <clears throat> Because of our conscience, because God wrote that 
national covenants. These covenants bound the physical descendants of Abraham to perfect, perpetual, and exact obedience to the moral law of God in exchange for temporal blessings while warning of temporal curses upon the breach of the covenant. Very important definition. <clears throat> so these covenants, these national covenants, bound only the physical descendants of Abraham. We see that perfect, perpetual, exact obedience to the moral law of God, which is that same component found in the covenant of works. And what was promised these physical descendants of Abraham were temporal blessings. The warning, the threat and curses, temporal, upon the breach thereof. <clears throat> so we know that God made several covenants with the descendants of Abraham. Uh, we have first the Abrahamic covenant, and then we have the Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant. All three of these covenants are related to one another. <clears throat> he who was born under the Abrahamic covenant, um, the Mosaic covenant came alongside and uh, corresponded to it, and the Davidic as well. These three covenants are not opposed to one another. They are different applications of the same covenantal idea. They are national covenants promising temporal blessings and threatening temporal curses. Only the physical descendants of Abraham were ever under the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. All of the Gentiles, all of the pagans, were never under these covenants. There were those who uh, converted in, became Jewish proselytes, who were not naturally the descendants of Abraham. We think of someone like Rahab. Uh, they uh, put themselves under these covenants, entered in, and became as if they were the physical descendants of Abraham. But all the rest were never under the Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic covenant, or the Davidic covenant. Only the physical descendants of Abraham were bound up under the conditions of these three covenants. And we're going to look more specifically at these covenants in the future, but if there's one thing that's characteristic about them all, is that the moral law of God and obedience to it is the condition. The moral law of God and obedience to it is the condition. Abraham was told, walk before me, speaking of obedience, walking before the face of God. Moses, the Ten Commandments are given, ceremonial and judicial laws are added, and then uh, Moses is directed by God to take the people to Mount Abal and Mount Gerizim, where they back and forth shout out the blessings that would come upon the covenant keeper, the curses that would come upon the covenant breaker centered all around the moral law of God only the Jews were under these covenants the Gentiles the Greeks and the pagans were not unless they chose to enter into that covenant and receive circumcision and we'll talk more about that the other important piece that we must recognize in these covenants and it's very important is that even though these covenants were really primarily focused on temporal things they pointed to, through types and shadows, spiritual things. As these covenants were worked out um, and established by God, a greater revelation of the gospel is seen. You compare the gospel that God preached to Abraham in ratifying that covenant with him 
promising him a descendant in the land. Abraham heard the temporal promises, saw in them the spiritual components and the promises that those types and shadows were pointing to, and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then we look at the Davidic covenant, far clearer revelation of who's going to be leading this kingdom of God. We see that it, it's not just going to be a descendant of Abraham. It's going to be more specifically a descendant of David. It's going to be one who would come and reign upon a throne eternally, forever. And that's just a small picture of the, uh, the movement of Scripture. The 1689 says that the new covenant was first revealed in Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelium, the very first gospel, and then was revealed by farther steps through the Old Testament. All of the covenants are revealing more deeply, more broadly, more specifically, what would be part of the new covenant until the full discovery thereof, until it became a reality in the new covenant. So these national covenants, again, are focused on those covenants made with the descendants of Abraham and comprise the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and the Davidic. There's a separate category under the national covenants um, that is specifically for the Noahic covenant. It is a national covenant, but it's not just with a single tribe or family or clan, but it's with all the families of the earth. It's a covenant um, that's different than all the others. The condition is one that God himself um, meets and establishes with the families of the earth a promise of temporal blessing until the end of the age. God would never again destroy the earth as he did in the flood. He would preserve the earth intact so that the way would be open for the Messiah to be born and bring about the salvation that God had planned from all, all eternity. The substance of this Noahic covenant is still in force today, unlike the rest of those national covenants that fell away in Christ. The Noahic covenant is still a promise that God has made to all men at all times, that he will never again destroy the earth in the same way, preserving not just the arrival of the Messiah, but that the church would be preserved until the end. So we have national covenants. Again, there's so much more I could say about these things. Um, this is introductory. We're going to be looking at it more specifically. Um, does anybody have a question that they would like to ask in connected with this? I would be happy to answer. Kelly? Would it be a parallel scripture to bring in Galatians 4, talking about Sarah mm -hmm. as a parallel Yes, Galatians 4 uh, is focused on Sarah and Isaac, Hagar and Ishmael, uh, speaking of uh, the characters in that story, uh, and, and uh, it even uses the word allegorical. It's a picture of uh, the difference between um, these national covenants based upon the covenant of works and law-keeping and the covenant of grace. Yeah, and we're going to be looking at that passage in detail, um, making that uh, more understandable. But thank you, Kelly. Any other questions? All right. We arrive at the third type of covenant, one that we are living under, very familiar with, 
the covenant of grace. There has only ever been one covenant of grace ratified by Christ in which all who look to him by faith are saved to the uttermost and gain his perfect keeping of the covenant of works as their own righteousness before God. Let me explain what I'm meaning by one covenant of grace. When I say one covenant of grace, I'm speaking of the fact that the covenant of grace is only a reality under the There is no other administration of it. The covenant of grace is revealed, but not realized in the Old Testament. The types and the shadows in all the Old Testament covenants are revealing farther steps, building towards greater clarity until Christ comes and then sheds his blood, which is the moment in which that covenant was established and ratified and cut. And then all of those Old Testament covenants that were foreshadowing, pointing to, declaring the covenant of grace that was coming fell away because the need for types and shadows had passed. This covenant was only promised in the Old Testament, not administered in any way in any of the other covenants. But even though this covenant was not established until Christ, even though it was not fully ratified until it was uh, done so by the blood of Christ, the realities of that covenant were still available in the Old Testament to those who by faith looked through the types and shadows that were preaching the gospel to the people. Circumcision that preached to them the necessity within the gospel of spiritual circumcision of heart, which the Pentateuch itself identifies and warns the people about. And you could go on and on uh, talking about the different types and shadows from the, the sacrificial system established under the Mosaic Covenant, one that had already been in practice from the days of Abraham's children, was preaching the gospel to the people that every time an animal was shed, year after year, they would see the inadequacy of that sacrifice and would anticipate what those sacrifices were pointing to. From the tabernacle to the, the later temple, having to go to one place to worship God, <clears throat> recognizing the difference between what, what God had promised and enjoyed <clears throat> in the Garden of Eden, what, what they were enjoying at that time, recognizing that those types and shadows were pointing to a greater reality in which the temple of God would be the people of God. We could worship God in any place in spirit and truth. Recognizing that the land, that physical piece of land, promised the Jewish people over there, the promise was not just that. It was far greater. Hebrews tells us that Abraham looked through that promise and saw the far-off country, the heavenly country, and in seeing that in his day, he believed. So all of these types and shadows within the covenants of the Old Testament are pointing to, revealing things related to the new covenant. We'll talk about the difference between revealed promises and realized promises. Very important distinction. But there's only one covenant of grace. All people who have ever been saved were saved by looking to Christ and are members and participants in the new covenant of grace. No longer are people saved by looking through types and shadows. 
saved by a covenant that it hasn't even been effectually purchased yet. But still, the effects of it are so certain that the people living in that day could enjoy all the privileges of what Christ was going to purchase for them. But yet we today join with them in participation in this new covenant of grace, enjoying the fullness of it. We are saved in the same way this day. So, three different types of covenants. The covenant of works, which is that covenant God made with Adam in the Garden of Eden, a covenant that was still binding on all men at all times, both those who were under the Mosaic, Abrahamic, and the Davidic covenants, and all the pagans and the Gentiles outside of them were still under it. Those national covenants that continued, that covenant of works, republishing them, the Abrahamic the Mosaic and the Davidic Covenant are not the covenant of works. They contain a reminder of what was already binding upon the people at all times. Those outside of those covenants were still under the covenant of works, but did not have it as clearly revealed, nor the promises of the coming new covenant of grace revealed to them as clearly. And then we have the covenant of grace, the new covenant that is better than all that came before it, and put behind it all of the inferior covenants now we live in reality. We no longer have types and shadows preaching the gospel to us. We now have a covenant that is all about the blood of Christ. We have a gospel that is clearly preached and proclaimed. So those are the three different types of covenants in Scripture. Do we have any questions about those? Erica? Covenant of work is still binding on all men at all times, though, right? Yes. yes. It's binding on all men at all times dependent upon whether you are in Christ or out of Christ. If you're in Christ, Christ's perfect law-keeping is credited to your account. If you're not in Christ, the law is still binding upon you. The reason why we don't say the law as it was given in Mount Sinai is still binding upon people is because only the Jews were under that and only ever under that. The covenant of works preceded that. We see knowledge of the moral law of God in Genesis. I've actually done a Sunday school study, uh, a class on looking at evidence of knowledge of the Ten Commandments in Genesis before it was given at Mount Sinai. All Ten Commands are present there, the knowledge thereof. Mike? Yeah, it's like when you read about uh, Noah after God talks to Noah about seeing and unseen animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just, I, since I started studying covenant theology, Yes, it, it's astonishing how much knowledge there was um, of the moral law of God. And Paul tells us that without the law, there is no sin. Therefore, we know that all those who were destroyed in the flood were guilty of violating something because they were sinners before God. You can only have evil if there's something defining what is evil. Someone had a question over here? Is that Kelly? So your question is, was Simeon in the temple when uh, Jesus' parents were bringing him in um, to do the the necessary sacrifice? Was he the first witness to the covenant of grace? Um, I don't know if I'd put it in those words. Um, 
because the covenant of grace wasn't established until Christ shed his, uh, right. his, his, his blood, until he died. But he was a witness to the arrival of the fulfillment of the promises. Okay. Um, I, I would word it more like that. Okay. Um, but the, the, really the first witnesses to the reality that the new covenant was established and effective were those who witnessed the resurrection. Because it is that point in which we see all that Christ had to accomplish according to what he agreed uh, to with the Father in um, uh, the eternal decree before the foundation of the world. It's in that we see that the Father approved that the Son had done all that was necessary. Uh, and so the women at the tomb that morning are really the first witnesses to the reality that the new covenant is firmly established. Josh. Um, so under uh, Old Testament covenants, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, anybody who believes by faith participates within the covenant of grace in every matter. Are they under their temporal covenant, covenant at the same time as they're under the covenant of grace during that time? Like, uh, how do those two things intertwine? It's a great question. Um, so those Old Testament covenants were promising temporal things. Um, and if they are looking to Christ um, and have his perfect obedience credited to their account, then they are meeting the requirements of what those covenants that are promising temporal things are all about. And so I would say in a sense, yes, they're able to enjoy um, remaining in the land. They're able to enjoy remaining the people of God, even when the rest of the nation is not. Um, and that's one of the things that's really important to see uh, in the Abrahamic covenant and once we get there, we'll, we'll look at it and the, the two-sided nature of it. Um, theologians call it the dichotomous nature, meaning two-sided, uh, two sides of a coin, not two covenants. But that there were those who um, looked through the types and shadows and believed in Christ, who was promised, and enjoyed the spiritual things that were alluded to and promised within those types and shadows. And one could say that they were still within the Abrahamic covenant, but enjoying the spiritual status uh, of what was in it and not just the temporal. That's a great question, Josh. You're thinking um, about the relationship of being in the new covenant of grace and then also living back during that time. It's a great question. So I was Dusty. thinking almost the same thing. Is it safe to say that practically speaking for believers, the covenant of grace and the covenant have been running simultaneously through all time together and still are. Because back then, they're looking forward to the covenant of grace, so in reality, it kind of was as, as if they were under it. Mm -hmm. And then now, yeah, Christ satisfied the covenant of works, but like you just said, we're still bound by that. Mm -hmm. So is it practically, they're both basically going at the same time? I would say practically, they're, they're going at the same time, but the new covenant, the covenant of grace, is not truly established until the blood of Christ was shed. So you could say it's being revealed and the efficacy of what will be available once it's ratified is already available um, for him. Yeah, basically. And they were living anticipation of the promises of God coming true. Think of the faith that took, believing in a promise that was still yet a promise. And yet we today, we live in light of what's no longer just a promise, but has happened. Well, I love that song, the Hope of the Ages song. Mm. Yeah. The other question I had, yes. um, when we see God's judgment on 
people throughout the Old Testament, mm-hmm. especially when he sends them away. How does that interact with those temporal covenants? Is, is it, okay, there's literally no one satisfying this or even trying right now, and so you, we're, we're sending the consequences now? How does that work? It's a great question. Uh, basically, Dusty, you're asking, uh, within the covenants in the Old Testament, when people were not living and walking in obedience to them, and, and God would send them off into exile, you know, what was God doing them because there was no one that was faithful? Um, I would say largely most of them weren't. Um, you, you look at um, the first time that the, the nation of Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land, they sent out the spies, and of them, you know, almost no one believed God. And God sent them off into the wilderness, and that generation perished. And then their children, um, in some ways, were slightly more faithful than their parents, but still, they doubted. They did not believe. And then, specifically, your reference to in exile, God has always had a remnant. um, But even in um, the exiles, you see the prophet after prophet going to northern and southern kingdom, warning the people, and it's like a deaf ear. Jeremiah is told he's going to go to a people who will not listen to him. Um, And yet, God still sent prophets. The nation uh, that was ordained of God to come and carry them off into captivity. The Syrians for the northern kingdom, the Babylonians for the southern kingdom came, carried them off, um, and not all people returned from the exile. Um, The ten tribes that were carried off into exile from the northern kingdom, um, none of those ten tribes came back. Not all of the the two in the southern kingdom that came back under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, not all of them came back. And so you see the, the, the temporal uh, threat and curse of being cut off from the people of God. It came true. Most of the people were cut off for their lack of obedience. And, and, and it's not as if they were carried off in captivity and then repented and believed. No. They still didn't even there. Mike. Does this make sense? amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Josh. Um, so would you say that, that the current nation of Israel exists only under the covenant curses? Uh, or have they been fulfilled and, and, and are those covenants just done away with with Israel? Or like, how do we apply those covenants that were done with the nation of Israel then to present day Israel? It's a fantastic question. Are these covenantal promises Um, still in force for this nation. What are they living under? Um, Scripture clearly teaches that the the old covenant has passed away because Christ fulfilled all that it was promising, all that it was foreshadowing. And so when you look at these these covenants, the covenant of works continues on. In a way, a covenant is still in force because God is still putting that sign, that visible sermon for my himself and for us to see that he's not going to destroy the world. But the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants, all that was promised 
and foreshadowed in and through them has been fulfilled. They have fallen away um, in the sense of they're no longer binding upon those people. They're no, they're, there's no promise in them that God um, has made that he has not fulfilled. Um, there is no separate purpose of God for physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Um, God has only had one people of God. There are those who participated uh, within that community in the Old Testament who were really not the people of God. And because they broke and violated the covenant through their lack of obedience, in their death they were revealed to not be the people of God. Only those who, through the types and shadows and promises, looked and believed were truly the people of God. And as we enter into the new covenant, all the promises that God made to that people had a temporal focus, but all of those promises had a spiritual reality they were pointing to. And when the spiritual reality in Christ has come to pass, the temporal passes away. We'll talk more about that when we get to uh, the newness of the new covenant and its relationship to what is still in force uh, from the Old Testament covenants. Um, but largely, um, there is no continuing um, promise of God to the nation of Israel. They are uh, those who are, um, as you said, uh, living under the reality of the covenant curse. They have rejected through their disobedience not just the covenants of God and his commands, but also what the covenants were promising and pointing to. And so God gave them over to what was threatened to them. They ceased to be his people, and they ceased to live in the land. I just wanted to make a comment mm -hmm. on uh, the earlier question about how people in the Old Testament got saved. I think that it's very useful for us to uh, think of it in, in scriptural terms because that is in fact the question that the Apostle Paul addressed. Mm -hmm. And he does so in Romans chapter 4. Mm -hmm. And Romans chapter 4 is a watershed passage mm -hmm. to understand salvation by faith. Before Christ came and after Christ came. And, and there were two important individuals that the, the, the Apostle Paul refers to who through his faith. First one is Abraham, mm -hmm. and the second is David. And, and in the mind of a Jew, you know, if you're preaching the gospel, the, the, the reaction was basically, hey, you are moving away from what we have always believed. And, and in Romans chapter 4, what Paul is doing is to show them this is in fact what the person you claim to believe is your forefather, Abraham. Mm -hmm. Believe. And also the other person who you really hold in high esteem, David. This is in fact the way he was made right with God. So it's very useful to think of it in scriptural terms rather than just. Uh, <coughs> Sometimes theological terms can be misleading, but hmm. the, the Apostle Paul addresses just that question in Romans chapter 4. Yes, Alan, you are exactly right, and um, when we get to that point, we're going to be looking at that passage and 
demonstrating the scriptural truth that is behind that. Um, so thank you for sharing that, Alan. Someone else would speak. Yes. Kelly? No, no, I think scripture is very clear. Um, the, the, the remnant of the Jews is under the same covenant that the remnant from among the Gentiles and the pagans are under. They, they're, they're not separate peoples. They're one people, the one church of God. Um, so, and that it's the same in the past, because lest we think that um, believers were only found under the Old Testament covenants. Think of Melchizedek. He wasn't under the Abrahamic covenant or any of the other ones, and he was a believer. They were part of that one people of God, even during that time, and the same is true today.